We made it clear as a board, if we continue to look like what we've looked like in the past, we will be irrelevant. So we've made a major effort to diversify in terms of communities of color. We've done a good job with gender diversification, sexual orientation, we have a way to go, but particularly communities of color, where when I started as CEO, about 6% of our members came from communities of color. We're up now to about 11%. We're getting better, but we still have a way to go. And it all is a, has to be intentional. You've got to be more sensitive to the role that life experience plays in developing expertise. Maybe someone hasn't published tons of articles in scholarly journals, but they've been in a job for the past X years serving the beneficiaries of social insurance. Is that not an expertise that we should recognize? So we had to be more flexible and redefine what we were looking for in our members, but it's an ongoing intentional effort. This is Associations Thrive, the podcast celebrating successful associations and their leaders. I'm your host, Joanna Pineda, CEO and Chief Troublemaker at Matrix Group International. Listen in as top association executives tell all, revealing the creative and innovative ways they're increasing membership, generating revenue, nurturing engagement, and reimagining their organizations. By the way, if you've launched a new initiative, created new member services, or updated your governance structure and are seeing great results, I want to hear your story and so do my listeners. I'd love to have you as a guest. Go to podcast.matrixgroup.net and apply to be on Associations Thrive. Now let's dive into this week's show. Today, I'm speaking with William Arnone, CEO of the National Academy of Social Insurance, or the Academy. Bill, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be on, Joanna. Thank you for inviting me. And I must say, I would love to earn your title, Chief Troublemaker. (laughs) I think I get called that behind my back anyway. I think most CEOs get that behind their back. Yes. We leave the building and then who knows what they're saying about us. (laughs) Bill, tell us about the Academy. It's the love of my life, first of all, the National Academy of Social Insurance. And of course, the first question we get is, of what? Right. (laughs) In fact, we have an internship program, and the first time we had interns, one of them said to me, social insurance, is that like having a a good party to go to on a Friday night? And I was like, oh boy, this is going to be a challenge. Well, what is social insurance? It's best explained by example. These are programs that are part of the fabric of American life. Social Security, Medicare, unemployment insurance, and workers' compensation. It's where the government pools risks across the entire nation, and then provides a level of universal benefits that people can access if they meet the definition of eligibility and experience the risks that these programs provide. Social Security, what are the risks? The risks that all of us will face, we hope, and that's to be at a point in life when I'm old and not working. Right. But it also covers things like disability, which none of us knows if or when will be a victim of an accident and become disabled. Social Security will pay disability benefits. So it really is this concept of pooling risks that each of us on our own are not likely to self-insure or provide insurance from the private sector. 
and do it in a way that benefits everybody. That's the premise behind it. And Bill, when you say that you're the National Academy of Social Insurance, what does that mean? Who are you? Who are your members? And what do you do? We are the largest organization of policy specialists or scholars or practitioners in one or more of those areas that I mentioned. We have about 1,200 members, which you might say, boy, is that, that's not a lot, is it, for a country of our size, 334 million. Mm. That's how many people have established a level of expertise. And you can't apply to become a member. We find the members. Ah. We have a membership committee, and members have to be nominated by existing members. And then this week, our board is voting on our new class of over 50 members. We admit usually about 50 members a year. Very diverse. In terms of different disciplines, we have lawyers, we have accountants, we have actuaries, we have sociologists, we have social workers, economists, a very interdisciplinary group. But you must have shown some understanding of at least one of the social insurance areas that we focus on. And the best way to show that is having written about it, taught about it. So that's what we look for in potential members. Bill, there are many, many think tanks in the Washington, D.C. area. So what makes the Academy different? I mean, you've got Brookings, you've got all these different think tanks that really touch on the subjects that you concern yourself with. Yes. Number one, we are nonpartisan. And that's to be differentiated from saying we're bipartisan. There are bipartisan groups. They'll get involved with both sides actively. We're nonpartisan. So we stay above the political fray. Ah. We also do something which I must say at some points, it's not easy. We don't advocate. If you look at the reports that we've issued, we say, here are the options to address a problem. Here are the criteria to analyze them. But we never say, and therefore, the National Academy of Social Insurance recommends A over B, C over D. We do the work, the analyses, we let others advocate. That makes us really different. We're also interdisciplinary in our work, and we do our policy work through study panels and task forces. People look at who was on the study panel, and they'll go, they can't agree on anything. Uh How did you get them to even agree on the problem? That's what we do. And we have a great track record of getting together. We like to call them strange bedfellows. Hmm. Get them together. In the old days, we get them together physically in a room. Today, more often than not, it's over Zoom, which I don't like. But they put aside ideology. They put aside ego. They look at evidence. And we're an evidence-based organization and very collegial. We really try to create an open environment where people are free to express viewpoints as long as they can back them up. And that's a big condition. You got to back it up with evidence. As opposed to just say, here's what I believe. In fact, when someone says to me, here's what I believe, I say, well, that sounds like it's a matter of faith. Wow. (laughs) Where's the evidence? So we're an evidence-based organization. Well, before we get into the things that the Academy is doing to thrive, and thriving you are, let's talk about your journey. So how do you get to become CEO of the National Academy of Social Insurance? I'll tell you, if I had planned it, it would never have happened. It's always the case. Here I am, I'm uh, just getting out of law school. My girlfriend at the time said to me, uh, there's an ad I just saw to direct a senior citizen center in the Bronx. Humor me and apply for it. And you were living in New York at the time? In New York, yeah. I said, senior citizen, seriously? Humor me. (laughs) And so, you know, at that point, I said, okay, if you really want to. 
So I applied for the job and I got the job. And I ran one of the largest senior citizen service agencies in New York City. Frontline, I'm dealing with mostly women who were widows and they had gone from being middle class to poor because all they had was social security. Uh, Boy, what an eye opener that was for me, watching them struggle to make ends meet. And it was debilitating for them, depressing. I had some background in politics because I was part of the staff of Senator Robert F. Kennedy when I was a young college student. So I would do constituent casework for him. And I was starting to get grounded in issues like Social Security, Medicare, but never at the level of intensity. And that got me thinking, I'm helping people, yes. But I need to get to the heart of the problem. How do we address retirement in a way that makes sense going forward with policy? Hmm. So then I became part of an area agency on aging. And then from there, I got discovered one day by someone who said to me, Bill, we're going to form this new thing called the National Academy of Social Insurance. Its goal is to get your generation to understand why do we have programs like Social Security and Medicare? And they were terrified of us boomers. Sound familiar? Yep. Because today I'm terrified of millennials and Generation Z. It was the same thing. If you don't understand these programs and you don't support them, they will disappear. They will die, right? So I got called into Washington. It's 1986. Joanne, I'm in a room with legends, names that some of your listeners may have heard of. Robert Ball, Wilbur Cohen, Robert Myers. These are giants in the history of Social Security and Medicare, and I'm in a room with them forming the board of the National Academy, the founding board. And that's how I got started. And I had no business being there, but I was going to take advantage of it in every way. And that was 36 years ago. I then went into business. So you left the academy. I left the academy. Well, I never really left. I would go to their conferences. I'd always pay my dues. And then the board of directors called me up in 2013. They said, you're retired now, aren't you? And I go, yeah. How would you like to come back to the academy as the chair of our board? Ah. I said, you know what? I'd be honored. And the next thing you know, I went from being the chair, which is a luxury, <laughs> to being the guy that's got to get it done, which is the CEO. And that was about seven years ago when I became the CEO. And it's a labor of love. I mean, this is my legacy when you think about it. So it's been something that's meant a lot to me my whole life, but more than ever now. Because I'm at that stage of life now where meaning is meaning and impact are the most important things to me. Is what I'm doing meaningful and does it have impact? I've convinced myself the answer to both is yes. Bill, what kind of skills did you need to bring to the academy to be able to run a nonprofit of this stature doing this type of important work? Well, I'm a lawyer by training. That helps, but it's not sufficient. I've always been a presenter my whole life in seminars, interviews. So I've had a good background in how to communicate with people. And then I, you know, managed to become a, an expert in Social Security because I've been involved in my whole life. And I love this program, but it's complicated. Man, it is the most complicated retirement system probably in the world. Hmm. And that's the thing we need to do is make it understandable. The other thing is I've been pretty good in my life as being involved in what's called business development. I was a partner at Ernst & Young, responsible for bringing in clients. So I know how to bring in, in this case, not clients, but supporters and funders. So it takes all those different elements of skills that go into what I think a nonprofit CEO has to do. And what I love about it is diverse. No day is the same. And I relish diversity in every way. 
And this job brings it every single day. Well, that's amazing. Let's turn to the academy. You know, many of my listeners run membership organizations where they're always trying to increase membership. And they're looking for companies and individuals to join. And they'll take, you know, as many as they can. You have a completely different model. So how does one become a member of the academy? You must be nominated by at least one existing member, sometimes as many as three. We have what are called outreach categories where we know we need to attract people from neglected areas, such as communities of color, different parts of the country. Most of our members are concentrated either in New York, Washington, Virginia, Maryland, or the West Coast. We need to get more geographical diversity. But you can't apply. You have to be nominated. Once you're nominated, you go through a rigorous assessment by a membership committee, and then you're given the good news. You have to pay dues, and then you have access to everything we do, including, to me, the most important thing a member has is access to other members. Yes. Our membership directory is a goldmine of intellectual capital that supports these programs, and you have a chance to network with people that normally you wouldn't have access to. And that's so really good. And then members are the lifeblood of the academy. We have study panels and task forces. Members serve on them. They do that pro bono. It gets them cited in a publication. It gets them connected with other people. So it leads to a lot of other things that benefit the members themselves. Bill, talk to me about DEI initiatives because I do have clients and I've had guests on who say, we're always looking for members, and sometimes what happens in organizations where it's based on nomination, you kind of rely on your network, and your network often looks like you. Absolutely. So how do you expand the membership with people who don't look like the members currently? This was an exercise in intention. We made it clear as a board, if we continue to look like what we've looked like in the past, we will be irrelevant. Hmm. So we've made a major effort to diversify in terms of communities of color. We've done a good job with gender diversification. Sexual orientation, we have a way to go, but particularly communities of color, where when I started as CEO, about 6% of our members came from communities of color. We're up now to about 11%. We're getting better, but we still have a way to go. And it all is a, has to be intentional. You've got to be more sensitive to the role that life experience plays in developing expertise. Maybe someone hasn't published tons of articles in scholarly journals, but they've been in a job for the past X years serving the beneficiaries of social insurance. Is that not an expertise that we should recognize? Uh. So we had to be more flexible and redefine what we were looking for in our members, but it's an ongoing intentional effort. So speaking of expertise, you say that you are nonpartisan and social insurance programs are at the top of mind during an election season. And we're coming up on this election season. So how do you, I guess, educate the public and educate the policymakers and not get burned by the rhetoric on both sides? Yes. And I'm always, as a rather risk-averse CEO, the one trouble I don't want to make is that type of political trouble. And in D.C., it gets a little dicey, right? It's very hard. And I've had people say to me, yeah, nonpartisan, who are you trying to kid? The Academy has progressive written all over it. Well, show me the facts, because if you read our reports, we go out of our way 
not to tilt the scales. I will admit, however, social insurance, the territory itself, has the veneer of left of center. Mm. Think of these programs. You associate them with, let's face it, democratic presidents. Right. Social security, Medicare. On the other hand, some of the best statements about social security were made by Presidents Eisenhower and Reagan. Yes. If you didn't know they were saying these words, you would have said, there's no way they said that. Well, guess what? They said these words. So this is a harmonizing concept, social insurance. It works on bringing people together. We're all in this together. And let's make sure that we develop policies that someday might affect you. You don't know it at the time, but think about it that way. And when you do, it's amazing how much consensus there is on issues that you might think are too divisive. Now, having said that, I don't want to be naive. Social security is a hot button. right? And you'll see it in the presidential election already today in the Republican primary. You've got a split. You've got some of the presidential candidates saying, don't touch these programs. And others saying, we have to. They're unaffordable. So this is going to be part of the national conversation in 2024. Our role is to make sure it's based on evidence and not ideology. And that's what we have to try to do. So what you're trying to do is really educate the public and policymakers. And you've got a wealth of just amazing information on your website. Who is producing this information? Are you funding research or is it the membership? It's the membership. So it's the research of the members. Yep. We have a skeletal staff. We rely on the members as our human capital. They thrive on getting involved. So any report we issue, you look at who did the report, it's the members. And we'll always engage what's called a principal investigator. Sometimes they will serve pro bono. Other times we'll pay them as contractors. Hmm. They do the writing, but it's all based on input from the members of the study panels and task forces. We're very proud of our body of work, some of which made a real difference. Others, and this is part of the think tank world, They're on shelves that haven't been opened in years. That kills me. One of the things we're doing now, and this is a big change for us, our last report was on COVID-19. How did social insurance respond to COVID-19? It's a dense report. We've accompanied it with what we call advocacy toolkits. We don't advocate, but if you want to, here's a toolkit where we take these dense reports, put them into bite-sized, digestible bullets, and some surrounding data to describe them. So advocates have a ready-made toolkit that they can use to take positions if they wish. This is brand new for us. So I think more and more what we do, it's going to have to be repackaged for advocates on the front lines and for beneficiaries to understand these programs. So that they're the most important voice, so to speak, right? We have a way to go on that. But that's part of the kind of the newer academy approach to these very thorny issues be more useful for advocacy organizations and the public and not rely on so-called experts. If we talk to ourselves, nothing's going to change. So how are you getting the word out about these toolkits? Because they sound amazing. And it sounds like community organizations can use them. States can use them. Anybody. Yes. And we've developed a list and we have a long way to go. We have about 150, we call them stakeholders. These are community-based organizations that are either national, state, or local. They're on the front lines, and they never heard of us. So we're deliberately courting them so they realize we're a trustworthy source of objective 
evidence that they can use. And if you were to say to me, of all the things the academy needs to be, what's the most important characteristic? It's that word trustworthy. Hmm. Trust is something you have to earn. And we've dedicated the life of the academy to earning the trust of organizations, employers, unions, the media, all of the key voices who are involved in setting public opinion. Those are the people that we must be worthy of their trust. And it's a constant challenge because of the environment that we're in today. Yeah. I'm actually doing a webinar and the title is The End of Expertise because we've killed the experts. We don't trust them. And so I think that that is a real challenge for organizations that in the past really kind of presented themselves as we're the experts and here's why. And I think now everybody feels like they can question the expertise. You're absolutely right. And usually another E word goes along with expert and that's elite. Ah, yes. Oh, you're the elite. You're the enemy, people will say. It's because of the elites we're in this mess. And, you know, you can't argue with that view. So to earn trust after being labeled an expert or an elitist is not easy. And we're constantly working at it. Bill, anyone can subscribe to updates from the Academy. And so who should be subscribing? Everyone. <laughs> Everyone, okay. You go to our website, nasi.org. Right away, you can subscribe. And we are careful. We don't overwhelm people with emails. We're very selective, but we'll send you things that we think you need to know. You can also indicate areas of interest, but we really have to get to people at every point. And the group I'm most concerned about are young people. Young people will ask me this question. Will Social Security be there for me? Oh. And my answer is, it's there for you now. Yeah. Sure, if you're thinking of it as a program for the elderly, yeah, I understand that. But it's got survivor protection. God forbid you were to lose your parents, you would get a Social Security survivor benefit. Children who lost parents to COVID got Social Security survivor benefits. Most people don't think of Social Security in terms of providing a survivor benefit, hmm. a disability benefit. So we have to get people to view these programs realistically and not artificially. They'll often be good about it. They'll say, you know, I don't want to see the program cut for mom and dad or grandma and grandpa. Well, that's good, but that's not good enough. You got to look at what does it mean to you? Yeah. When Franklin Roosevelt sold Social Security, by the way, he was very clever. You know what he said to young people? Without this program, Mom and dad are moving in with you. <laughs> ah. Not the ah. most noble way to sell the program, but it worked, right? Interesting. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, we got to have this program. <laughs> the last thing I want is mom and dad moving in with me, right? Bill, are there other areas of social insurance that you think we as a country should be looking at? Are we well covered? Or are there holes? There are holes. In fact, we did a massive report on our website, Economic Security for the 21st Century. We identified all the gaps. And we came up with 100 policy options that might address one or more of the gaps. I'll give you one example. Unemployment insurance. It works if you're an employee. If you're an independent contractor or part of the gig economy, guess what? You don't have protection. Ah, because no one's paying for that insurance for you. You got it. Workers' comp is the same thing. Ah. Boy, and that's a gap because that group of the labor market keeps growing and growing. They also don't have health insurance. 
They are unprotected in so many ways. Long-term care. A lot of people think Medicare covers nursing home care. It doesn't. Medicaid does. Medicaid is a means tested program. It's not social insurance, although it's got more beneficiaries now than Medicare. So it's pretty much grown into what most people would think of as like social insurance. But you have got to spend all your money before Medicaid will pay for long-term care. Mm. This is a huge gap. And we've seen this coming. We can't plead ignorance. This is demographics, but we haven't addressed it. And that, to me, is one of the biggest gaps. The New York Times has been running a series called Going Broke. This is the plight of elderly people in our country. They're going broke because they can't afford care. Right. And the poverty rate among old people is higher than ever. Wow. We think we cured this, right? The American people go, we took care of that. We passed Social Security. Poverty's gone. Well, guess what? It's up to 14%. This is the highest poverty rate among the elderly of any country in the world, so-called civilized country. We have a long way to go, Joanna. So while I'm proud of what has been done in the social insurance ecosystem, there are still too many gaps. Well, I'm grateful that an organization like the Academy is thinking about these things. And let's make sure that you stick around for the future. So let me ask you this question. How are you funded? It's through a diverse portfolio of funders. And that's one of the things I've insisted on. We can't have too many eggs in one basket In the past, we relied too heavily on foundation grants. Do you need them to survive? Yes, it's credibility that comes with foundation funding. But if all you had were foundation funding, I don't think we could continue. So we have member dues, which are very important. Donations, a lot of members give above and beyond the dues. Ah. We have one major fundraising event each year. You might say only one. Well, this is the big one. We just had it last November. It's called a Robert and Ball Award. And you can go on our website and relive it. That's a big fundraiser for us. And then more and more sponsors, individual and more importantly, institutional sponsors, businesses, unions, other organizations, nonprofit where they support us. So it's a very, very diverse portfolio of funders. And we do some work for government agencies, but not very much. So those are all the key sources of funding for the academy. So what does 2024 look like in terms of the discussion or the conversation that we're going to have as a country about social insurance? To me, every four years, we hope there is an enlightened conversation. My fear, Joanna, it will be a polarized conversation. Mm, That's a real fear. Big fear. It becomes an us versus them. And we've got to make sure doesn't get framed as us versus them. It has to get framed as we all are at risk for something in life. So put yourself in the other person's shoes and say, that could be me. And that's the way you've got to look at social insurance. And then I think we have a chance to straighten out. But we can't sugarcoat either. These programs have long-term financial challenges. And we can't close our eyes. The uh, Social Security program has a trust fund. That trust fund if we don't do something, we'll be depleted by 2033, 2034. That's not that far away. Not far away at all. That's 10 years. I know. Now, what I don't like is when people say the program's going bankrupt. No, the programs are going bankrupt. Let's say we did nothing. The program would still exist, but the benefits would have to be reduced right. by an order of maybe 20%. Now, that's not good, but that's not bankrupt. It's not zero. So we have to talk about it in in an honest way, but we can't minimize the challenges all these programs face. 
So it sounds like we all need to go to the website. I'll put a link in the show notes. Get educated about these issues so that during this next election cycle, we can be part of the conversation about what we want to do with social insurance in this country. Yes, I think that's the key. And if you are educated enough on it and can talk about it to elected officials, they'll listen. But the burden is on us to know what we're talking about, so to speak. But I think it's doable. Bill, I want to thank you for this interview today. I know I learned a lot, and I am going to make sure that this podcast gets distributed far and wide. Maybe you can come back in the future and tell us about what's happening with social insurance and what the Academy is doing. I would love to, Joanna. So thank you for the opportunity, and I hope people take advantage of what we have to offer. And I always thrive on questions. So go on our website, register, sign up, and then you'll have a chance to uh, communicate directly with me. And I thrive on that type of feedback because we all learn from what uh, people uh, feel in the in the real world, so to speak, and not the world of Washington think tanks, which is, as you probably know, an unreal world in many ways. All right. Well, now we know how to email Bill. Thank you, Joanna. Thanks for listening to Associations Thrive. We're so glad to have you here. You know, my personal mission and the mission of my company, Matrix Group International, is to help associations and nonprofits increase membership, generate revenue, and thrive in the digital space. I want to hear stories of how your organization is thriving in today's challenging landscape. Please apply to be on my show by going to podcast.matrixgroup.net. By the way, do you need help with a digital initiative? Maybe it's a website redesign, a new membership database, or a hybrid meeting that you're planning. I'd love to connect with you. Please visit the Matrix Group website at matrixgroup.net. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode of Associations Thrive. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, leave a five-star rating, post a comment, and share it with your colleagues and friends. Bye! Bye!